Now, today is an exciting day in the life of our congregation, right? It's not every day that we get to throw a picture of a brand new baby up on the screen in chief's gear, right? And after all, today is also a day that many of you have been longing for, have been waiting for, 50 years of waiting. I mean, you've been hoping against hope, right? Yet, today, the Chiefs head to the Super Bowl. They, they're competing for the honors of world champion. And I know that many of you in this room are excited. I have seen it firsthand. I've experienced it. I know what it looks like. But I have to be honest. I don't really share your excitement this morning. I mean, let's just be honest. The most exciting part of this postseason was not two weeks ago when the Chiefs beat Tennessee. Not for me. It was three weeks ago when Tennessee beat Baltimore. Okay? As a Steelers fan, it's a small consolation for, a te- for my team that didn't make it into the postseason. But, hey, if I'm also honest, as I've observed you, my friends, celebrating the Chiefs, celebrating the victory, celebrating the fact that they're competing in the biggest game tonight, it's been hard not to take notice. It's been hard not to get drawn into it. I've rejoiced with you. It has cheered my heart. As I've watched the the expressions on faces, I mean, I have to be honest. Two weeks ago, I gathered with several others from this congregation and watched the game. And it was fun to watch how you all reacted. When it was true, it was guaranteed, the Chiefs were headed to the Super Bowl. This is an exciting day. And in the spirit of being honest this morning, we're going to take some time and we're going to look at some truths of God's word. We're going to dig in deep. We're going to wrestle with this idea called truth. We're going to investigate the claims of Christianity. You know, I don't know if you came to church this morning praying for a Chiefs victory, praying for a Chiefs loss, praying for at least a few good commercials to pass the time. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what brought you to this place we call church. I don't know if you come here week after week, if you're here because you're always here, if you don't know why you're here. Regardless, this morning I want to look at truth. And I hope that we can just make one simple point together from God's word. That's right, this sermon has one point, broken into two subpoints, each of which are broken into four subpoints. <laughs> Don't worry, the game's not till 5:30. We've got it till at least five o'clock, right? Okay. Some of you know that that's only partially a joke, right? All right, the point of our sermon this morning is this, simply this, it is old truth that unlocks the door to real love. Old truth unlocks the door to real love. This morning we're going to accomplish something you don't often get to say. We are going to cover an entire book of the Bible. 166th of the book. Now granted, it's the second shortest of those books, but we're going to cover an entire book 
of the Bible. So I invite you to open up your Bibles and turn to the book of 2 John. If you're uh, using one of the blue Bibles that's provided in the pew, you'll find it on page 1025. 1025, if you just open the back cover, flip back a few pages, you'll find it. 2 John is conveniently located between 1 and 3 John. So if you find one of them, you're awful close. Now, as I mentioned, it's short. It doesn't even get half a page in my Bible. So it's easy to miss, but that's where we're going to spend some time together this morning. And I also want to say that if you don't have a Bible, if you're going to read a Bible, if you know somebody that will read a Bible that doesn't have a Bible, those blue Bibles are our gift to you. Please take one home with you. Please share it because we believe God's word is precious. It's the greatest gift we can give. And so it would be our joy if you would take that blue Bible with you this morning. So, have you found 2 John? All right, let's read together. It says, The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth. Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. From God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have had, just as you, as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister, they greet you. As we walk through this text this morning, as I mentioned, we're going to break it up into two main points, or two subpoints, each of which has four subpoints. Okay? The first part we're going to look at is the old truth. We'll find that in verses one through six. The old truth. And then in verses seven through 13, we're going to look at real love. We're going to discover how the old truth first binds us together in faith. It binds us together. Next, we'll see how old truth can still our hectic, chaotic hearts. Then we're going to see how that old truth 
can cheer our, our spirits. And we'll see how it can compel us to obedience. As we look at the second part and this real love, we'll discover that it guards against counterfeits. It abides in the words of Christ. It protects the truth in the church. And finally, real love is what completes our joy. Don't worry, we'll cover that all again as we move forward. But before we get into it too far, a couple of things just to set the stage so that we understand what we're looking at here in 2 John. This letter is a letter that was written by the Apostle John. He's one of the original 12 disciples. He was called away from his fishing nets with his older brother James. He spent three years following Jesus around and listening to his teaching. He was right there. He experienced the teachings of Christ firsthand. In fact, John was considered to be one of the inner three. There were experiences that not all 12 got to have, but John was there. He was part of it. This letter comes years later, perhaps as much as 50 years later, after John walked with Jesus. John is widely held to have been the last of the 12 disciples to die. He'd had time to see what happened as the church was birthed. He saw the incredible growth of Pentecost. He saw how the faith spread about Jesus from the city of Jerusalem, from this band of followers around the Sea of Galilee, until it was literally in every corner of the Roman Empire. He saw it unfold. He also saw systematic persecution break out against this new church, first from the Jews, later from Rome itself. And he saw error and false teaching creep into the church. He saw how false teaching would sneak in to try and deceive. And that's what prompts the writing of this letter. It's that false teaching that was creeping in to the church that prompts John to write this letter as well as 1st and 3rd John. So look with me again at the first two verses. It says, The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. This is a very typical way to start a letter in the first century. And you know, it actually makes a lot of sense. Have you noticed that when we write letters, oh wait, we don't write letters anymore. When we write emails, um, we wait till the end of everything we have to say to sign our name, right? So you're reading this letter, you're reading this email and you're going, okay, who's this from again? And you have to cheat and jump all the way to the bottom. Well, that's not how a first century letter was written. A first century letter identifies the author right from the get-go. So we have the elder. How do we know this is John? Who's the elder? You know, nowhere here does it say that this was John. 
It just says, the elder. It's a phrase that has admittedly puzzled some people through the centuries. Because the word elder, it simply means someone with age. It means someone who has advanced age. Now, if we stop and think for a moment that perhaps 50 years have passed since Jesus was teaching John, I think it probably fits John, yeah? He's probably in his 70s, 80s, perhaps. Okay, we can make that argument. By extension, the term elder had come to mean someone who was respected, whose wisdom was a treasure to a community, perhaps a a real village, perhaps a community of faith. Again, John's experience with Jesus would certainly lend itself to the interpretation that John was indeed the one that we know would have written this. In fact, we also know that the term elder is one of several terms that's used to describe an office within the church, an office of leadership. The term elder is interchangeable with the terms pastor or bishop or overseer. They all refer to the same role within a local congregation. By this point, John is serving... According to church history, he is serving the church of Ephesus in a role of leadership. So again, this would seem to match up. Now, that may not convince you that John's the author, but I'll stand behind 2,000 years of history where they've agreed that John was the author. But if we, if we settle that, we set that aside for a moment, then we must ask the question, who then is the elect lady and her children? That seems to be a far more interesting question, don't you think? Was this a distant lover? Have you never considered this? I heard several of you laugh. Who was this elect lady? Maybe it was a sister or a daughter perhaps another woman of faith that John had grown particularly close to. Throughout the centuries, some have suggested that this was indeed a specific woman. If you go back to some of the earlier translations of the Bible into English, they would actually transliterate the Greek, the word Kyria, as a proper name. That's one way to look at it. But the reality is if we do so, you get later in the letter and the ladies used a little bit differently, and it, it gets a little messy to try and make the argument that this is actually a person's name. Rather, I think this is a personification of the local church. The lady represents a church. The members are the children. The members of a church are the children to whom John writes. <coughs> You know, there might even be here a hint of the bride of Christ. Jesus is portrayed as the bridegroom and the church as his bride. What's most clear, though, in these opening words is the fact that John holds these people very close to his heart. It's here that we first encounter this old truth. 
These are the people I love in truth. Not only I, but also all who know the truth. It's the truth that abides, which knits John's heart to this church. A church that was separate from his own, but one that he was drawn to. In fact, this truth bound his heart and all who share knowledge of the truth together. Forever. There is a series of truths that are so important, so compelling, that they tie together people separated by geography, even separated by centuries of time. That's why we gather together every single week around the Bible. That's why we gather around to sing praise, to sit under the preaching of God's word. Because we believe without any reservation that these truths are what bind us together. We don't come here because we like to see each other. We come here because we believe these truths. What's more, the old truth that Scripture proclaims here, it brings peace to our restless hearts. Look again at verse 3. Grace, mercy, and peace. They will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son. In truth and love. See, there's that truth again. And the love, but we're getting ahead of ourselves there. That's for later. I have a question. How do you define grace? How do you, how do you define mercy? Is there a difference? We sung of both this morning. Grace and mercy. Grace is the unexpected pleasure of receiving gifts that are entirely undeserved. Mercy, on the other hand, mercy is a stayed hand when the punishment is most certainly deserved. Grace is receiving a gift you don't deserve. Mercy is not receiving the punishment you do deserve. Undoubtedly, we will see examples of both this evening on the football field. It's true. Because you know, as well as I do, at least one player is going to blow a play completely. They're going to drop the pass. They're going to miss the tackle. They're going to fumble the ball. They're going to turn it over. There's going to be a miss. It might even be so egregious that no one would blame the coach for benching him for the rest of the game. But the reality is, he'll take the field for the next set of downs. Because it's the big game. See, that's mercy. And you know what? He might even have the privilege of hoisting the trophy over his head in pure celebration at the end of the night. That's grace. He blew the play but he still gets to hold the trophy. You know, that might be a silly way to think about grace and mercy, but our text here tells us that grace and mercy 
and peace are the gift of our God. You know, what's really curious is you study this, that little word and, it's not in the Greek. It just says grace, mercy, peace. And the more I wrestled with this and went, that's odd. Got impressed on my heart that grace plus mercy equals peace. When we receive the gifts we don't deserve, when we are spared the punishment we do deserve, that's when we find true peace. True and lasting peace. Perhaps this morning you don't know what that's like. Perhaps this morning you are overwhelmed with the weight of life that you're carrying. Have you ever experienced the kind of peace that washes over you and takes away every concern? No matter how frantic life might be, there's a calm assurance that all is going to be okay. That's the kind of peace that God brings. That's the kind of peace that the truth about Jesus brings. Even here, there's an example of a key truth of Christianity. We're told that this comes from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son. See, there's a claim here of Jesus' divinity. He was not just a mere man. He was so much more than that. He was God in flesh. He's not just a good moral teacher. He's not just somebody with some nice sayings. He is divine. He is God. He is the beginning, the end, the creator of all things, the alpha, the omega. He is the incarnate son of God who came down to mankind. And that's a truth that can calm our hectic hearts to know that our God loves us enough to come to us. Let's keep moving forward. Verse four. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. Notice that this was a command of the Father. John here is celebrating obedience to the commands that are given by the Father. To put it another way, he's making a connection back to the Old Testament. He's upholding the rest of the scriptures. He's saying the commands that God gave through Moses in the law, obedience to these is a cause for great joy, great rejoicing. This morning, this text serves as a reminder to every single believer, to every brother or sister in the Lord, that there is little in this world that is of greater excitement of greater joy than hearing of another person triumphing over sin, following in the steps of Christ. I want to make a couple points of application on that, that idea that there's nothing of greater joy than hearing what God is doing in the life of another believer. First of all, we have to become involved enough in each other's lives within the church that we know about the victories and the struggles. 
Church is not an event that we attend. It's not a building that we come into. Church doesn't begin at 1045 and end at noon. Maybe our service does, but church is a gathering of believers. It's a gathering of people who assemble together for the purpose of encouraging each other in the faith. If you slip in after the song service starts and you slip out the back door before the last prayer, you are robbing yourself of the joy that God promises to his people. Second, we have to be willing to share our struggles. We've got to be willing to open up and talk about our sin. Because how else can we rejoice when we triumph over sin? If we never get past the pleasantries of, good morning, how was your week? And get to the weightier matters, the things that are really happening, we discredit the words of Ecclesiastes chapter 4. It says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. We need each other. One more point of application here on this idea of great rejoicing. Does your level of excitement for the temporary passing things of this world leave any room for real celebration? As a culture, I think we are too easily excited. I'm just wondering, will the blown call by the referee this evening create a greater emotional response than the prayer requests that were shared during Sunday school? Think about that. Which has eternal value? Will you overreact to the next Facebook post, the next Instagram story, and miss the fact that your sister is struggling? The look on her face, will you miss it? Do you leave room in your emotions for the true things to be the most exciting things that you celebrate? Our greatest source of joy is the work of the Lord in our midst. We better keep moving. Verse five. <clears throat> now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For m we'll stop there. Let's not get to verse seven just yet. This is the point. This is the pivot point the whole letter kind of turns right here on these verses. Cling to the truth that we've had since the very beginning. Don't look for something new. Return over and over to the truths of the gospel. 
If you're not normally with us on a Sunday morning, you might find it strange how we sing songs that say, alone in our sorrow, dead in our sin, lost without hope, with no place to begin. You sang that this morning. Or how about this one? Our sins, they are many. But his mercy, his mercy is more. Maybe even a little bit stranger. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We come together and we gather around a bloodied, horrifically murdered man. That's a little strange. Let's just be honest. This is a room, people, room full of people who have gathered to worship a murdered man. But the truth is he didn't stay dead. He's also the resurrected Lord. You know, maybe the old hymn says it best. It says, I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story because I know it's true. It satisfies my longings as nothing else can do. I love to tell the story. It's pleasant to repeat. What seems each time I tell it, more wonderfully sweet. I love to tell the story. For some, they have never heard the message of salvation from God's own holy word. I love to tell the story. For those, those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. And when in scenes of glory I sing the new, new song, it will be the old, old story that I have loved so long. The more we love our Savior, the more we desire to obey his commands. The deeper we go into the truth of who Jesus is, the more it changes our very lives. It's the old, old truth of what Jesus did on the cross at Calvary, that is what compels us to obedience. We don't obey to earn God's favor. We obey because of his great, great love. That's why we come back time and time and time again to sing these songs, to study this book, because the love of God compels us. The sacrifice of the Father, the death of his Son, it proclaims to a watching world the deep, Deep love of Jesus. Love is a powerful motivator. Real, lasting love. There has never been a greater expression than what we see in Jesus. As John says in his gospel, chapter 15, he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer 
do I call you servants? For the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you that you should go, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. See, that brings us to the second half. To the idea that real love is what we're here for. Old truth unlocks the door to real love. We see this in verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Does this strike you as strange? I'm just curious. Here John is confronting a heresy. He's taking it head on. But did you notice what the heresy was he was confronting? Some were proclaiming that Jesus did not come in the flesh. I don't know where you're at. I don't know if you are here this morning and you are doubtful of the claims of Christianity. But I would speculate that to deny the divinity of Jesus in your mind might undermine the claims of the gospel far faster than to deny his humanity. To say that he wasn't fully human. But that is exactly the teaching that John is confronting. You know, this is what many consider to be an early form of Gnosticism. It's a heresy that would be more fully developed in the second century. And this this concept was just that, that Jesus he wasn't really man. In fact, there was a uh, theologian from Egypt by the name of Serinthus who lived near the end of the first century, and he held to a theory that Jesus was born as just a man. The baby that was born, and, and we sing about at Christmas in the manger, he was born just a man. And that it was not until his baptism that the divine nature entered into him. Further, he contends that before Jesus hung on the cross, the divine nature left him. There's another theory out there that comes from the early second century that suggests that actually what happened was one of the greatest magic tricks you've ever seen. Jesus, after he'd been beaten and bruised and was carrying his cross up the hill to Golgotha, we're told that there was a man by the name of Simon of Cyrene who was compelled to carry the cross for Jesus. And that in so doing, they swapped places. And Jesus actually didn't hang on the cross. That there was not a true death. We don't know what John's getting at here. We don't know exactly if it was Serinthus or this other guy's theory about Simon. I mean, those are some pretty wild theories. But what we do know What is truly important is the fact that to deny the coming of Jesus in the flesh as fully human is to undo the incarnation. 
it renders void the sacrifice of Jesus. You see, only a man, only a human can die for the sins of humanity. The Old Testament taught us that the sacrificial system, it was insufficient. The blood of goats and rams, of bulls, it was not enough to clear our name. A human had to die. But not just any human, a perfect, spotless, without blemish, sinless man. And that's why we unashamedly believe here that Jesus was both 100% God and 100% man. We believe that the word became flesh and that he dwelt among us. We believe that he actually died. We believe that he was actually buried. And we believe that he actually did raise from the dead in bodily form. To quote directly from, from this church's statement of faith, it says, Christ is the eternal son of God. In his incarnation as Jesus Christ, he was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus perfectly revealed and did the will of God, taking upon himself human nature with its demands and necessities and identifying himself completely with mankind, yet without sin. He honored the divine law by his personal obedience and in his substitutionary death on the cross, he made provision for the redemption of men from sin. He was raised from the dead with a glorified body and appeared to his disciples as the person who was with them before his crucifixion. He ascended into heaven and is now exalted at the right hand of God where he is the one mediator, fully God, fully man, in whose person is affected the reconciliation between God and man. He will return in power and glory to judge the world and to consummate his redemptive mission. He now dwells in all believers as the living and ever-present Lord. Real love is willing to guard against any counterfeit, anything that would contend against the truth. Our love compels us so. Verse 9, it says, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Our love is content. It's content to sit in the words of Christ. The things we believe about Jesus, we believe because Jesus said them himself. The things we believe about Jesus, we believe because his followers carried those truths to their graves. We've already mentioned how John is believed to have been the last of the 12 disciples to die. They also contend that he was the only of the 12 disciples to die a natural death. The other 11 died a death of horrific martyrdom. Some even suggest that John survived being boiled in hot oil before he was banned to the island of Patmos. It might sound trite, but we're okay with the Bible tells me so. We're okay with that here. John is warning against anyone who would go beyond or take too far some of these more complex ideas that the Bible teaches. 
Ideas like the incarnation. How can God fully inhabit a human being? How can he be both? Ideas like the Trinity. How can there be one God in three persons? These are difficult truths, but they are truths nonetheless. And we are content to rest in the words of Christ. Let's look at verses 10 and 11. We're almost there. We're in the home stretch. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. These might strike you as the harshest or strangest words in this entire little letter. Is John actually suggesting here that as believers we should not associate with people who do not share our beliefs? Is he advocating for seclusion? Are we supposed to walk away and become nuns and monks and hide in the mountains to practice our faith? Obviously, no, I don't think he is. But remember, if we assume that this elect lady is a specific person and the children are indeed her biological children living under her roof, it gets a little difficult to draw any other conclusion. If anyone does not bring this teaching, do not welcome him into your home. Don't even say hello. Okay, But if this is the church, then we should interpret verses 10 and 11 in light of the church. As we read here, it says, in the ESV, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. Again, translation's funny. I'm no Greek scholar, but what I did learn is that the word your is strangely missing. As you go back and you read other translations, you, yours even might say, into the house. Some of the oldest translations actually just said, do not admit him into house. They just skip the word. doesn't make any sense in English, but that's what it says. I believe here that John is contending that we as the church must protect the truth. We must protect the church. This is why our church has things like membership. This is why we have a statement of faith. This is why we have a church covenant that tells us how we should act together in fellowship with one another. John is teaching us that individually and corporately, we have a responsibility to protect the witness of the church. What's the number one complaint someone outside of the church will raise against Christians? Hypocrites! See, we all know it. It's the number one. And you know what? They're right. Praise God. <laughs> if you're here and you're like, you're all just a bunch of hypocrites. You're right. We are. We absolutely are. We are sinners in need of grace and mercy. But John is also advocating here that we should combat this perception outside the walls of the church. We should defend 
truth. We should only admit into our midst those who share the core truths. Now to be clear, John is arguing against attacking the primary truths. To deny the incarnation is to deny the truth about who Jesus is. Jesus who is not fully God and fully man is not Jesus. There are some ideas that we can dismiss, some ideas that are not that important. You know, should we use social media? What does the Bible say? It doesn't. It's something that's been left to Christian liberty, to our freedom as believers. If you want to use Facebook and you don't want to use Facebook, that's okay. We can be together in the same church. But when you deny the core teachings of the Bible, you invite confusion about the church. You know, as we wrap up, I just want to encourage you in fact, I want to personally invite you to investigate these truths. Actually, this Wednesday, 6.30, we are starting a journey. It's going to take about four weeks where we're going to look at what does Trinity believe. We're calling it Trinity 101. We're going to study these truths that we hold to believe. Whether you've been part of Trinity for 50 years or this is the first time you've ever set foot in the door, you're invited to take time to study what we believe. Every single believer has a responsibility to protect the truth. Every one of us. We share that responsibility. You see, John says, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. And he says, the children of your elect sister, they greet you. The reality is, God's word is full of so much more. And John recognizes that there is good in communicating truth. But he also recognizes that to be present, to be together, is far better than just writing a letter. How many times have you been misunderstood on social media? How many times have you sent an email at work and said, ooh, I wish I could have that one back? We must communicate truth. But it is being together in the truth that John says brings complete joy. It brings complete joy. We may not want to admit it, but the Chiefs only have a 50% chance tonight. There's two teams, and one of them's going to win. You know, the NFL, they've got an exception for the Super Bowl. They don't allow a tie. Somebody's going to win. It might be the Chiefs. It might not be. But the reality is, we know someone who has already won the victory over sin and death. To have truth without love is just bondage. To love without truth, it's not really love at all. 
Jesus is love. Jesus is truth. John wrote in his first letter, he said, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come back up. And I'm just gonna ask a question. Have you grappled with the idea of who Jesus truly is? Do you know this Jesus? 100% man, 100% God. If you do not, I encourage you, ponder these things. Wrestle with these truths. If you've been a part of this congregation for weeks or years, I invite you, think about these truths. Think about the importance of doctrine. If you've not joined with us in membership, I'd ask you, why not? Would you at least consider investigating these things by joining us for Trinity 101? Regardless, I invite you this morning. I invite you to come and be in awe of our Savior. A Savior who brings us truth and love.